So one of my goals um, this year that I really think was from God was that I would allow myself to be and that I would be able to help some other people to be amazed by the Bible. It's like a big thing to me, to be amazed by the Bible, and it's, it's happening for me. Um, y'all, the Bible is awesome. It's, I don't know if you've heard this, it's God communicating with us. That's like, if that concept doesn't floor you, you're, you're just not paying attention. It's God communicating with us, and it's just so full of meaning and texture and nuance and details and power and beauty. And it's like the more we dig into it, the deeper it gets. And the more we understand it, the more we understand that we're never really going to completely understand it. And yet, that doesn't cause us to be like frustrated with our capacity. It causes us just to be amazed by the Bible. Have you, I've talked to some people about this last night at the picnic. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you read a passage in the Bible and it's like, man, that is exactly what I needed at this exact moment of my life. And then years later, you read that same passage and it's like it means something completely different to you and it just happens to be exactly what you needed at that moment of your life. It's, it's amazing. Um, Hebrews 4.14 says it's alive. It's alive and it's, and it's powerful. And there are just so many ways to see it and so many different ways to understand it. There are so many like different lenses to look at the Bible through. In fact, two of the great um, biblical influences in my life, two of the great biblical influences in my life look at the Bible through completely different lenses. And they see the Bible through completely different perspectives. Um, One of them is a guy named Tim Mackey, and I talk about Tim all the time. I'm sure you've heard of him. He's a pretty famous theologian, Bible scholar. He founded the Bible Project, If you're not watching videos on the Bible Project, you're really missing out on something. But I discovered Tim's teaching about four years ago, and I've taken a bunch of classes with him, and I've listened to about a million of his podcasts and sermons and read everything he's written, I think. And Tim understands the, like, big picture theology of the Bible like nobody I ever heard before. In fact, what a lot of that I'm going to be teaching in the next several weeks, I learned just directly from Tim. And he teaches more of what people call biblical theology. So biblical theology is all about reading the Bible just for the purpose of understanding who God is. That's it. It's just for understanding who God is. It's all about seeing like how the Bible fits together um, to reveal God's plans, reading the world. And so you've heard of some names of some famous biblical theologians, um, Tim Mackey, um, C.S. Lewis, Vaughn Roberts, Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards. These are, these are biblical theologians. And a lot of the cool stuff in biblical theology is this concern with what the original biblical authors believed and what they thought and what they saw in their context and in their time. So a lot of biblical theology is just trying to get into their heads 
and understand their language and what they believed and how they saw God and how they saw his plan and how they saw his world all fitting together. And the thinking is, God inspired those people to write the Bible. And what they wrote under that inspiration is just brilliant. So a biblical uh, theologian wants to understand what they understand. And a big part of the work of biblical theology is just trying to put yourself in their shoes and trying to put yourself in their place and their time and their culture. Um, and it's hard because it's people that lived thousands of years ago and they spoke a completely different language than us and their lives. If you think of the biblical authors and the original hearers of these stories and the original readers of the Bible, their lives were so different than ours. I mean, they didn't have Monday night football. I mean, can you even, right? It, they didn't have like cell phones. Think of the technology, think of the techno, think of the word IT, right? We talk about IT all the time, information technology, right? So what is IT for us? How is information stored and shared for us? And for us, you know, it's, it's in you know, the internet and it's on blogs and, and social media and, and, and what was it before this? It was DVDs, right? And what was IT before that? It was floppy disks, remember those? What was it before that, old people? Encyclopedias, remember? Encyclopedias were a big stack of books that people used to have and that's like where the information lived and that's how the information was shared. But for these people, for the people that wrote the Bible, for the original people that heard these stories and read these stories, information technology for them wasn't DVDs and it wasn't cloud-based, right? It wasn't even books. This, this technology, the codex, we call it, the, the, of, of, of taking pages and binding them together on one edge so that you can flip through them, that technology was only being invented at about the time the Bible was being written. So most of the Bible was never even in this technology. It was in like scrolls, but even without books, and even without the internet, and even without a Bible app, God's people knew their Bible because every night they repeated it to each other and they repeated it to their kids. And every Friday, families and neighbors and friends would get together and they would eat an amazing meal. Every single Friday, they would have this awesome meal and then instead of watching a movie, instead of playing Pictionary, they would repeat these stories and these poems and the law so that by the time a kid was grown, he'd heard the whole Hebrew Bible hundreds and hundreds of times. Just, I mean, think about all the time you've spent in your life in the evening um, watching TV or on social media or watching videos or at a kid's ball game or something. Imagine if virtually all of that time had been spent telling and hearing and repeating and discussing the Bible, how well would you know the Bible? And that's their world. And a really cool part of biblical theology is seeing something that's kind of foreign to us, but it was really natural to those people. And that is just the brilliant way all the parts of the Bible work together. 
Um, it's really important. Um, they saw it, I think, more clearly than us because they didn't have soccer, right? They, that, that's all they did. And it's, it's easy for us to miss these connections between the various parts of the Bible. And there's a lot of connections uh, throughout the Bible. So, for example, like when Jesus would quote something from the Psalms that were written th- hundreds and hundreds of years before him, the people that were listening to him knew what he was talking about. Right, so when Jesus just threw out a term, the valley of the shadow of death, they knew, right? That immediately took them to the 23rd Psalm and they knew it was like a hyperlink. It was like a hyperlink. He said something and that took them someplace else. So this is really amazing. So think of this, uh, in Luke 4:18, Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. And Everybody there that heard him say that knew he was quoting Isaiah. And this hyperlink to them, it, it took them to that place where Isaiah said, someday the Messiah is gonna come. And when the Messiah comes, he's gonna say these words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And so when Jesus said that, it like connected them, right? It like, it like took them to, it conjured up this image and they knew when he said that, Not only the words that he said were true, they knew what he was claiming. He was claiming to be the anointed one. So these hyperlinks are super important in the Bible. If you're really gonna understand biblical theology, understanding that a lot of what Jesus said and did was connecting to people, to other stories in the Bible. So the biblical authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote this incredibly complex collection and it is full of these hyperlinks. They're almost like inside jokes for people that understood them. So I'll give you like an illustration of this. This is gonna be a really important concept for us. If I say these words to you, I'm your father. Most people know what that means. It means I'm your father, right? But for some people, those words are a hyperlink, right? For some people, the words I am your father takes them to a completely different place. If you only knew the power of the dark side, Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No, I am your father. Okay, quick vote. Finish the sermon or watch the movie? <laughs> uh, don't vote, that hurts my feelings. You see how that worked? Just those words. Some, for some people, and they're mostly nerds, really. So for some people, just saying those words like took them to that place. So this phrase, I am your father, is like a hyperlink to that whole story. And so just those words bring up lots of ideas and concepts and feelings and emotions and thoughts and memories. And the Bible is full of these hyperlinks. In fact, if you look in the footnotes, you know what your Bible has got all the text and then down at the bottom in the really small print, it's got like A and then down under A it'll say, he's talking about Hosea, right? That's what it's telling us where the hyperlink, the Bible is full of these things. And, and they're really important for us to try to understand where those people's minds went when Jesus said certain words or when Jesus did certain things. So here's another example. In John 8, 57, Jesus used two words, I am. 
It's three letters, right? I am. And the next verse says, immediately they picked up stones to kill him. How come? What, what's, what's the big deal? The words I am. He, three letters, and they're gonna kill him? Why do they get so crazy about those three letters? Why do they get so bugged that Jesus said the words I am? Because for them that was a hyperlink. As soon as Jesus said, I am, that hyperlinked them back to the story of Moses and the burning bush. Remember what God said? Moses said, who do I tell him sent me? And God said, tell him, I am. And they knew. When Jesus said, I am, he was claiming to be Yahweh. You see that? That's an amazing concept. Just as soon as they said that, it hyperlinked them back. And I'm telling you, the Bible is full of these hyperlinks. In fact, there's a guy named Christopher Harrison that has come up with a really neat graphic that I'm fixing to show you. And along the bottom of this graphic, you see all those little black and white and gray lines? Those represent all the chapters of the Bible. So Genesis 1-1 is way over there, and Revelation is way over there. And each one of those different colored arcs is a hyperlink. So, so way back here, when Isaiah said, someday the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to say, um, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he's anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. Then there's a line drawn from that over to where Jesus actually said that. Um, so when uh, Jesus said, I am, when Moses uh, talked to God and God said, I am, there's a line that hyperlinks that over to when Jesus said, I am. There are 63,799 of these hyperlinks in the Bible. And so now all the biblical theology nerds are saying, man, I'm gonna look up all up tonight. I'm gonna track them out tonight. So biblical theology is like, it's, it's kind of like philosophical. Um, it's kind of academic. It's really, it's biblical theology is really about trying to like dig into scripture and unpack this stuff and unpack culture and unpack language just to try to figure out who God is and what truth is. So a biblical theologian loves what Jesus said in John 8. Jesus said, if you're in my word, I mean, if you live in my word, if you abide in my word, then you'll know the truth, John 8, 32, and the truth will set you free. So that's a little bit of like my understanding, my version of biblical theology. And guys like Tim Mackey are great at it and they love it. But the other biggest biblical influence of my life was Robert Emmett. Robert was my pastor at CBC for years, and Robert is, I think, the best life application preacher that I ever heard. And Robert, Robert taught a different kind of theology. It's, it's what some people call a systematic theology. And a lot of preachers you've heard of use systematic theology or a version of it like Rick Warren and Craig Rochelle, Chuck Swindoll and T.D. Jakes. And systematic theology is a little different than biblical theology. Systematic theology is about like summarizing and grouping scripture together by the topic. So systematic theology is less philosophical and it's more practical. So these teachers see the Bible as like an instruction book. For, it's practical instruction. It's not just about how to know God and what God's up to and what God's thinking and trying to connect my mind to his mind or something like that. It's more like, 
Well, how does the Bible help us know how to live? And so uh, systematic theologians love 2 Timothy 3.16. It says all scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God. And And here's the part they love. And it's useful to teach us what's true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. And it corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us what to do is right. And God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So in systematic theology, we see the Bible mostly as instruction on how to live a full, rich, satisfying, God-honoring life. And Robert, I mean, particularly has a gift for, I've sat with him reading the Bible a million times and and he can just like look at a, a passage and like, the application like leaps off the page to him and he'll just say, oh, this passage is, there it is, it's, it's four ways to have a happy marriage, right there, right? This is, this is three lessons on how to deal with criticism, right there in Peter. You know, this, is, this, is, this, this verse tells us how to resolve arguments with our neighbors, right? And so Robert taught me really one of the, the best things I've ever learned about how to live a happy, successful, meaningful life in an acronym. And his acronym is RTD, no, RTB, D-W-I-S. Who knows what it stands for? Read the Bible, do what it says, right? So a biblical theologian and a systematic theologian see the Bible through two different lenses. Biblical theology is about us going back in to the stories and to the poems and to the discourse and really trying to like dig out and really trying to understand the biblical author's ideas and and understandings and cultures and perspectives and languages and just see what we can learn about God. And then systematic theology is about bringing what we learn out and back into our world and applying what we learn about God into our own lives and then following those instructions and following those examples, especially the example of Jesus. So here's my question for you. These are two brilliant people, right? One is more of a biblical theologian and one is more of a systematic theologian. Um, Which one's right? Let me just tell you, we've said this before, when Christians disagree, the best thing we can do is like trash each other on social media. Right, just fight it out, argue, call names. That just honors God and glorifies him in so many ways. Um, no, obviously, I mean, I, they're, they're both right, right? They're both right. Although what I've learned is these two camps actually kind of like to make fun of each other. Um, so that uh, more of a, if, if somebody is a systematic theologian, they would like tease the biblical theologian and say, you, you really think God wrote this whole book of stories and instructions just so you could sit at your computer and ponder things? Because I don't see Jesus doing that, right? And then a biblical theologian would say, do you really think that God inspired people thousands of years ago to write this stuff down so that you could disagree, figure out how to settle this argument with your neighbor because their dog pooped in your grass? Now, what do you think it is? So I really got kind of mixed up on this a couple of months ago. It's like, well, which one is right? And so I called my friend Scott Collins. A lot of you guys know Scott. And I said, Scott, I got a problem. I don't know how to preach. Um, I don't, I don't, which is it? 
I mean, is it, is it really biblical theology? Are we supposed to just read the Bible for the purpose of understanding who God is and that's it? Or is it systematic theology? Are we supposed to read the Bible as an instruction book about how to live our lives? And Scott said something really brilliant to me. He said, maybe it's both. Maybe the Bible is so amazing that every passage and every story and every poem can speak on multiple levels to multiple people about multiple things. And maybe the purpose of the Bible, you ever think about that? Why? Maybe the purpose of the Bible is both to reveal to us who God is and to give us instruction on how to live a life that honors him. And you know what? Scott's right. The, the Bible is that good. It's God communicating with us. So for the next, I don't know, 30 weeks, <laughs> we're, gonna, we're gonna go through one of the best known books in the Bible, and that's the Gospel of Matthew. And we're gonna hear stories and teachings that we have heard our whole lives. But what we're gonna try to do is we're gonna try to look at it through both lenses, through this theological, philosophical, knowledge-seeking lens of biblical theology and through the practical, real-life application lens of systematic theology. So we're gonna try to say, when we read this passage, how does it tell us who God is? And when we read this passage, what does it tell us we should do about how to live our lives? So it's all gonna be about knowing Jesus, but also following Jesus. So that's maybe the longest sermon introduction in history. Um, I wouldn't have a whole lot of time now, but we're gonna do just a quick little bit of like biblical theology. This is the one we're probably the least comfortable with. So today we're gonna do a little biblical theology on a passage that we've heard a million times in our lives, and we're gonna refuse to just say, oh yeah, I know that one, right? Instead, we're gonna dig, and we're gonna really try to understand what God's trying to show us about who he is and, and, and what he thinks and what he loves and what's important to him. So this is gonna be Matthew 1, uh, verse 18. It says, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man, and he didn't want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. And as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So we've heard this story millions of times. We've even seen the plays at Christmas, right? And it's easy to skip over it, but we're gonna be biblical theologians today, okay? We're gonna dig in, we're gonna try to go back to the original authors and the original hearers and the original participants in the story, and we're gonna try to dig out some language and some culture and some hyperlinks, okay? You guys in? Say it with enthusiasm, you guys in? Okay, see, the practical stuff is a lot more fun, right? If I said today we're gonna to talk about three ways to improve your sex life, who's in for that, right? Ah, right, you gotta, gotta, gotta get serious about it. We're gonna be biblical theologians today, okay? So let's talk about 
culturally, right? What's going on culturally? Um, so here's Mary and Joseph. Uh, they live in a little town called Nazareth. Um, we know now that Nazareth at this time was probably like 400 people, 500 people. It was mostly just a couple of really big families. So when you think of Nazareth, don't think San Antonio, think Candelia, right? Think Luckenbach, right? This is a little, little town and everybody knows each other. And it's very traditional Jewish culture. It's a real honor-shame society, right? It's a big deal to save face, right? Honor and shame rules everything. And one of the main ways that they have honor is in their righteousness and in the way that they follow God. So um, in these days, how did like engagements happen? If you think about it, I'll tell you now. So in, in today's world, in our world, here's how engagements happen. Uh, the happy couple goes for a walk on a mountain. And when they come to the perfect cliff, at a very surprising moment, he kneels down. He opens up a little box, and inside it is a diamond ring. And he says, will you marry me? And she cries, and she hugs him, and she says yes. And she's so surprised because she never saw it coming. But luckily, her friend, who's a photographer, happened to come along. <laughs> And now she can post it on social, so it's awesome. That's how we do it now, right? That's how we do it now. But in Judea, 2,000 years ago, right, who's running the show on engagements? Is it, well, listen, is it the bride and groom or is it their parents? 100% their parents. It was, a, this was arranged, right? The parents decided who was gonna marry who. Remember Fiddler on the Roof? Matchmaker, matchmaker, that's what it was. That, that's, that's, that's how it worked. And the process was set. I mean, they, it's very traditional. They did it the way they did it every time. So when they were very young, 10 years old, 12 years old, the, these families that really knew each other, they'd always known each other, they would like make this arrangement. Okay, our kids are gonna get married. And when they got a little bit older, mid-teens, late-teens, then they would really get serious and the parents would like execute this contract of marriage. It was a really big deal and they had like, you know, they had to sign it, have it notarized or whatever and like the, there were legal stuff, there were documents to be signed and the whole community were there and everybody knew what was going on. They would set an approximate date. Okay, we're gonna do this a year from now. And so then the man's job during that first year was to like show that he was ready. So he had to you know, make sure he had a job and he had some money and he would build a house and he would have some goats and then, okay, well, he's ready. And then the woman's job was to stay pure. And that's it. So then a year later, if they both did their jobs, then they make it official and they'd have this actual wedding and it would be like a parade. He would go to her house and he would get her and he would bring her to the ceremony and they'd have this big ceremony and they'd have a couple of days of partying and then they would move into their new house together and they would live life happily ever after, right? So that's like culturally, that's what's going on. And so that's where Mary and Joseph are. They're in that year, probably. They're in that final stage, years of history. Their families have known each other for years. The whole family has known for years that these two were gonna get married. And Joseph has got his house built and he's got some money, he's got some goats, and now they're interviewing wedding planners and DJs and florists. And so now Mary turns up pregnant. So let me ask you a question. Honor, shame society, very Jewish culture, right? 
strongly religious people, very small town. Mary turns up pregnant. How's that gonna go over? Like poop in a punch bowl, right? I mean, that's this, like, how's Joseph gonna take this? What's Joseph gonna do? I mean, she had one job, right? And, and, and I, I'm just thinking of the conversation, right? We're trying to put ourselves in their shoes, aren't we? I'm just thinking. So Mary's like, oh, yeah, I need to talk to you about something. <laughs> Is it where we're having dinner tonight? No, no. Um, you know, I'm pregnant, but it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. I, I, I have been faithful. It's, not, it's the Holy Spirit. So um, you, should, you should believe me because, yeah, I'm, I am the one woman in the history of the planet Earth to get pregnant as a virgin. So let me ask you a question. Do you think the people in Nazareth bought that? Here's a harder question. Did Joseph? He didn't. He, it said he was gonna divorce her quietly, right? He had every right to divorce her publicly and, and humiliate her even more. This was, listen, this was a really big scandal in a really small town where honor and shame were like all that matters. And everybody knew everybody's business and every family knew every family's business. This is a disaster. So Joseph's a nice guy. He's, he's not gonna embarrass her, but he's like, yeah, I'm out. This is, I'm out. This is too humiliating for me and for my family. So here's my question. What would it take to change his mind? What would it take to change his mind? Guys, I'll ask you, put yourself in his place. You've been engaged for a year. You know there's been no physical interaction with you. And she comes and she says, oh no, it's okay. We should just go get married anyway. What, what would it take for you to say, okay, yeah, let's just, let's just go forward with our plans. What would it take? It would take something like really big, right? It would, take something, it would take something huge, and that's what happens, something huge, because in a dream, this angel comes to Joseph and tells him this bizarre story. It's a really, really weird story, but I think Matthew wants us to see what Joseph saw, that this is a huge deal, that what this angel says to him in this dream changes like everything because something completely unique and something completely awesome is going on and it's not like some of the other like Greek mythology about some god has sex with some human and they create some super baby or whatever. There's no sex in this story. This is different. Who's the, who is the divine agent of life? and the divine agent of creation in this story. It comes up twice. In verse 18, yeah, the Holy Spirit. It says she became pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20 says the baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Why does this come up? Why is this such a big deal? Why does he say it twice? Why didn't he just say she became pregnant by God's power? And I'll tell you why I think. I think because these words, by the Holy Spirit, are important. I think it's a hyperlink. I think in the mind of Joseph in the story and in the mind of Matthew writing this story and in the mind of everybody who first heard this story, in the minds of the people who this was written to, remember, they know their Bibles, man. 
They know their Bibles inside. They've heard these stories every night for a thousand years. So what story do you think they hyperlinked to? Like when he said she's, you know, she's, this, this new life is going to come to the Holy Spirit, what, like what story did that conjure up in their mind? What, what other time in history had they heard about a supernatural, spontaneous creation? Got to be page one, right? It's got to be Genesis 1. It says, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and somebody was there. Who is it? The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. I think the angel is using a hyperlink here. And I think Matthew wants us to see that what moved Joseph to stay with Mary was this hyperlink. It was this understanding that he had that this isn't about reproduction. This isn't about sex at all. It's about creation. This is about the generation of life where there was no life. But this is a completely unique, unprecedented creation of a whole new kind of man created by the Holy Spirit for a specific reason. And um, is he a man? Yeah, but he's not like the original man that was susceptible to pride and sin and failure. Jesus is actually God and man together. That God had become a, a baby man, right? This, this baby man is God. I think that's what that means. And we're, that's what we, we can dig out of this story. And a good biblical theologian sees confirmation of that just in the name. So look at this part. This is Matthew 121. The angel says, you're gonna have a son and you're to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And if we, at the surface, yeah, we can just read that or we can dig in. And if we dig in, we're gonna see that Matthew is telling us who Jesus is. And he's not just doing it by telling us straight out. We gotta do some biblical theology and we gotta dig it out. It, it's in the story. Who Jesus is, it's in the story. And it's in the verse. And it's in this name, Jesus. The angel said, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people. So in Hebrew, this original name, Jesus, is Yehoshua. Let me hear you say Yehoshua. Say it really fast, Yehoshua. Yeah, so you can see then how that got shortened and ended up being Yeshua, right? And this is where we get the word Joshua. If your name is Joshua, this is, this is your name. And so Yehoshua became Yeshua. And then when that Hebrew word was filled with Greek letters, Yeshua became Jesus. And in English, somehow, the Y got changed to a J and it's Jesus. So Yehoshua sounds way cooler, doesn't it? Uh, but it means the same thing, Yehoshua. It's, a, it's like a compound word. So Yeho is from the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. And Shua is a Hebrew word that means saves. So Yehoshua, Jesus, means Yahweh saves. So you will name him Yahweh saves. His name, Jesus, means Yahweh saves. This is really interesting because he says you will name him Yahweh saves 
because he will save his people from their sins. So, so who's gonna save the people? Yahweh or this kid named Yahweh saves? You will name him Yahweh saves because he will save his people from their sins. Who's gonna save the people? Yahweh or Yahweh saves? And the answer is yes. So do you see, like, you see what's happening? Matthew is making a claim. This angel is making a claim. This story is making a claim. And this claim is what moved Joseph to stay with Mary. And that claim is that this baby is a human, but he's also Yahweh. So who, who will save the people? Yahweh? Are Yahweh saves? And the answer is yes. And who, who is this baby created without a human father? Is, is he human? Is he Yahweh? And the answer is yes. And he's come to save his people. He's come to say he's Yahweh. And he's come to save his people, not to give good tips, right? Not just to give good teaching, not just to help us live better lives. He is the savior. He's, he, that's what saviors do, right? They save. He is, he's the solution to the problem of sin and separation from God. And listen, all the Jews knew, right? Matthew knew about this, this, this problem of sin because throughout the Old Testament, what we've seen it the last few months, right? There's this prevailing storyline of this broken humanity that is just hopeless and forever separated from God and separated from the life that God created us for. And this, this storyline is unresolved through the whole Old Testament. The whole Old Testament really just over and over just kind of says that things are jacked up. You know, God is separated from people because of sin, and it's just not gonna get better because people try harder or because people learn new things. People just keep proving that they can't keep the covenants and they can't have a relationship with God. And eventually, God is gonna solve this problem. God is gonna solve this problem. But he told Adam and Eve that he was gonna do it through a human. And when he does, then we will experience what God intended at creation, which is God and man together, and God's kingdom fully come. Von Roberts has a great quote about what God's kingdom come looks like. He says, it's God's perfect people in God's perfect place under his perfect rule, enjoying his perfect blessing. That's, that's where we're going. And at that time, God is, gonna, God is gonna be finally and fully with us. And God said, he's gonna do this through a man. And this story is making a huge claim about this baby, that he is that man, that he is God and man, that he is the one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. He is the one that has the power to save his people. And it's all in this name, Yahushua. Isn't that amazing? But Matthew's not through. I mean, he goes on with another commentary about another name for Jesus. Look at uh, verse 22. This is Matthew 1, 22. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means 
God with us. This is a prophecy from Isaiah 7. This was said 700 years before Jesus was born when Isaiah was saying the the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is gonna come. He's gonna fix all this stuff and he's gonna put us back together with God. We can't do it. We've proven we can't do it. God's gonna do it through a man and the man is coming and he's gonna be called Emmanuel. And this word in Hebrew, another complex word, Imanu means with us and El means God. So Emmanuel means God with us. So let's review. Who saves? Yahweh or Yahweh saves? Yes. So this baby, is he a baby man or is he Yahweh? Yes. <laughs> and I, who is this baby? Is he Yahweh saves or is he God with us? Yes. <laughs> so like what do we learn? This this means that Jesus is God. This means that God is being revealed to us. God is being revealed to us in Jesus. Tim Mackey, great quote here. He says, this means that God, Yahweh, is not content sitting far away and watching humanity rot and fester and grow farther and farther from him and the consequences of their failure. Instead, he would choose to join us in our pain and become a man and show us what humanity could be if man could be one with Yahweh. God wasn't satisfied watching us struggle. He wasn't even satisfied saving us from our struggle. He wanted to be God with us in our struggle. Jesus is God revealing himself as a man. Jesus is God with us. He is his love and his passion and his compassion and his sacrifice and how much he loves us and wants to be with us and how faithful he is to forgive us and how able he is to save us. We see all of that. We see God in Jesus. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, uh, 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the God who saves, but in human form. And he's Emmanuel, the God who couldn't stand to watch from a distance. So that's some fun stuff for the biblical theologians. But now a practical, a systematic theologian would ask the next question. So what? Right? Like now what? How, do, how does that, that's interesting. How does that affect our lives? How does that affect our world? How does that affect our time? So we know this truth now of who Jesus really is. Um, what should we do with it? And we don't have time today to do just a, a, a big breakdown on that, but we don't really need to because I think, it's, I think it's pretty straightforward. If Jesus is God revealed as a human, if Jesus is God with us, what, what should we do? How should we live? And I think the answer is we should follow Jesus and we should accept him and worship him and depend on him and lay our lives down as a sacrifice for him. And if you've never done that or you've never started that, maybe today is your day of salvation. And I would just encourage you, we've got people in the back in the prayer corner that would love to help you with that or talk you through that or find me after church. I'll be walking around out there talking about the weather 
and golf and stuff like that. So if you just come up and say, hey, Larry, you know, now that I see who Jesus is, I want to follow him. What do we do? And let's, let's talk through that. We would, if you're online with us right now, just put something in the comment box. We'll call you today. We would just love to help you start a relationship with Yahshua, the God who saves. Emmanuel, God with us. So today we're just starting. Um, in this series, Matthew is going to help us do two of the most important things that a human can do. Knowing Jesus and following Jesus. So some weeks are going to be more biblical theology about just knowing him and understanding him. And some weeks will be more practical theology about following him and living his way. And they seem like they're really separate and they seem like they're really different, but they work together. Because the more we know him, the more we're going to want to follow him. Because Jesus is not just another teacher or a great leader or a prophet or a guru. He's, he's Jesus. He's a savior of the world. He's God with us. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Uh, Father, thanks for, for your word. And just my prayer has been for a while. Will you just amaze us? And just show us how complex it is and show us how meaningful it is and show us how it matters in our world right now and today. Will you just keep unpacking this thing before us? And God, will you just, your word says that you're a rewarder of those that diligently seek you. And so that's what we're doing. We are diligently seeking you. So will you just reward us by just revealing yourself to us and showing us who you are and showing us how we should live a life that honors you and draws people to you and a life that's rich and satisfying and fun and great for us. We just show us how we can know Jesus and how we can follow him. And Father, as we're going through this thing, I just pray that you'll just continue to give us wonder and amazement and curiosity and interest and passion for your word and for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, just uh, super quick, um, a lot of you know on Wednesday nights we have uh, some, a lot of life groups going on. We have a women's group that uh, meets at 6.30 and we have a men's group that meets at 6.30. For the next four weeks, we're gonna be combining those two groups and we're gonna be doing some special kind of fun stuff. So I'd really encourage you, if you're available, this Wednesday night at 6.30, uh, we're gonna all meet together in here. The next week, we're gonna do a service project. The next week, we're gonna meet again and have another great teaching. And then the following week is gonna be August 10th. We're gonna have a night of worship where all we're gonna do is get together and worship Jesus. So mark your calendars for that. If you can come out Wednesday nights at 6.30, we'd love to have you with us. That's it. God bless you guys. Have a great week.